Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And once again, you know, this is not just a podcast about how many medical pearls we can get out in one hour, but it's a podcast about, you know, being yourself. It's about wellness, about anyone who just wants to help people. And today, you know, the best part in the whole world about having my own podcast is I could put my friends on it as much as I want. So today <laughs> I have not only a friend, I actually have a endocrinology guru. I know I'm embarrassed by saying that. <laughs> wow. But okay. the key thing is that, you know, I love this guy because he was actually my resident. I was so privileged to have a part in, you know, mentoring him early in his training. And I always tell my students and residents, you know, be better than me. And he took that to the next level. And that's why I'm so impressed with him <laughs> is that, you know, I'm, I was like quizzing this guy when he was on rounds with me. And now I'm interviewing him as the pro on these topics. So I'm so proud of him. I think the only thing he did wrong was that he didn't go into pulmonary critical care, but he could answer. Well, <laughs> I had to do something different to, so that I wasn't showing you up too bad, you know? Well said in two shades. Um, let, let me read a couple of things about Braden. Let, let's see what he gave me. So I'm going to be reading this off the list. So he completed his undergraduate studies at Stanford University. I didn't know that. So good for him. Subsequently, he completed all his medical training here at Keck School of Medicine at USC and, of course, LA County. Uh, this included med school, his internship residency, and he did his endocrinology fellowship here. And he joined full-time faculty here at Keck in 2017 after his fellowship. He is right now a clinical assistant professor, but I'm sure he's not too far away of being associate professor uh, of medicine and a clinical educator in the division of endocrinology. And he spends his own you know, private practice and time teaching in clinics, teaching inpatient consult service, trainees at all levels. He loves lecturing to medical students, which doesn't surprise me. He teaches to pharmacy students. And he's been invited guest speaker on multiple topics in the realm of endocrinology, diabetes, at local conferences, CME events here in Southern California. I think he's being humble. He could have put more stuff in there. His name is Dr. Braden Barnett. Hey, welcome to the show, Braden. How are you doing, bud? Thanks for having me on, Dr. Raj. Uh, this is, uh, I think, my, my first podcast. So thank you for bringing me on. Oh, I, I'm glad there's another first with me here. All yeah. right. This makes it special. So, you know, let's do the get to know each other, even though I already know you pretty well, but let's everyone else get to know you. So you went to Stanford. I mean, you're, I'm glad you're not snooty like all the other Stanford people I know. You know what I mean? I'm glad yeah. you're down to earth. How excited were your mom and dad when you got accepted to Stanford? They were very happy. And yeah, I mean, they, they supported me uh, all along the whole process. So I owe just as much to them as I, as I owe to, you know, all my teachers and friends and anybody else that I, you know, was with that on that journey along the way. Um, I come from a Trojan heavy family. So my mom and dad both went to uh, USC 
aunts, uncles. They were, my, my mom was sort of hoping I might uh, go to SC for undergrad, but uh, obviously they were still happy that, that uh, I got into Stanford and that I went there. But then when I came to USC for my medical training and as you read, you know, ever since then, uh, my family and especially my mom has been very uh, excited since that point. So let me ask you this. So when you went to Stanford, was your thought process out of high school? Yep. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an awesome doctor. What was your major in Stanford? And was it always that medical route? Or did you kind of change to ship somewhere during your undergraduate training? Um, it was always on the radar. Um, I, uh, like many other people in, um, in the, the healthcare profession and, and the medical profession, especially, I have doctors and healthcare providers in the family. Um, my father is a retired uh, internist. My mom's an optometrist. My, my uncle is also uh, an internist, occupational medicine specialist. Um, another uncle is an ophthalmologist. So definitely been, been in the family since I was growing up, but I never felt pressured by my family to specifically go into medicine or any particular field. They supported me pretty much no matter what. So when I went to Stanford, when I enrolled, I, it certainly was not on my uh, to-do list of, you know, got to be pre-med, that's going to be the goal. I, I ended up majoring in a program called Earth Systems at uh, Stanford. So my degree is in Earth Systems. Earth Systems is... Uh, <laughs> what is that? I got to hear. What is Earth Systems? I don't know. I, I, I just, <laughs> there's, there's other programs at other schools that are similar, but this okay. is you know, one of those majors, one of the programs that, that certain schools, in this case, Stanford comes up with, that's mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of a mixture of, uh, it still is, you know, mostly a, a science-based um, major. So everybody has to take a little bit of biology, a little bit of uh, chemistry, a little bit of physics, um, which, you know, obviously work, did end up working out to my benefit. Because sure. Those were were pre-med classes, but sort of, you know, worked out in my favor, I guess, but um, also uh, involves taking a little bit of geology, um, a little bit of economics. You have to take a computer science class. You have to take some classes involving like public policy and things like that. It's a lot of a lot of different things, or, or I should say it's a little bit of a lot of different things. And so I went into that sort of with the idea that maybe I want, I might want to go into something related to uh, marine science. Actually, I love the oh, ocean. Oh, all right. I grew up uh, close to the ocean, going to the ocean a lot. Did a lot of, uh, you know, like I was on a, an oceanography contest, like trivia team. Uh, when I was <laughs> um, so I really liked marine science and that kind of stuff. So I went into Earth Systems. You had to choose sort of like a sub focus within that. And my sub focus was marine systems. Okay. Um, and so that was really interesting. And, and I did really enjoy the major, but as time went on and I, you know, when I was looking for like, a, you know, an internship to do between my junior and senior year, I didn't really find anything that that was super exciting or thrilling to me as something to do um, after uh, I graduated. And I didn't really want to pursue another degree within that field. I wasn't interested in getting like a master's degree or a PhD in um, marine systems or environmental science or anything like that. And so all along, I had sort of been 
you know, having the idea of, of going to med school in the back of my head. And I had been, you know, doing some extracurricular things to sort of uh, pursue that further. And it was really, uh, yeah, just at the, the, the end of my junior year that I made the decision that I was going to apply to medical school, knowing that because it was, you know, maybe a little bit later than some other people who know really early on that they're going to do it. And then right after undergraduate uh, studies. Um, since I was a little later than them, I thought maybe there's a, a chance that I, I wouldn't uh, get in on the first round, but um, I got super lucky and, and managed to, to get into med school um, to start right after I graduated from uh, undergrad, which is what I wanted at the time. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have anything else that I wanted to do. Um, and I don't really regret my decision. You know, it's not like I was going to get on a boat and be a longshoreman around the world or something. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, I, I don't regret that decision. And then, um, you know, I sort of wasn't sure whether it was the right choice, right. When I, when I started med school, but within the, the first couple of weeks, I, uh, I really felt like it was, it was the right choice. And I felt really glad that I had done it and yeah, no regrets. Well, let me let me do a diversion question, which is yeah. I never knew you were going to be like a Jack Cousteau of like, you know, the ocean. So have you actually yeah. been in the ocean, Brayden? Like, <laughs> like you want to do something in the ocean? Can you don a scuba gear and actually I, be part of that? I'm not scuba certified, so I've never gone scuba diving. And, okay. <laughs> and I do think that scuba diving sounds really cool. And I know a lot of people are you know, they, they say, oh, it's, you know, the only way to, to see the ocean and to see things that are beneath the, the surface. Um, I've done a lot of snorkeling and I, I feel like I've seen a lot of cool stuff. Okay. Doing, I definitely look forward to doing that again in the future. And I'm not opposed to doing scuba diving, but it is, you know, a lot of extra, uh, or not at least a little bit of extra time and getting all the certifications and <laughs> to be perfectly honest, freak me out a little bit. <laughs> the, the snorkeling, at least I know I'm always like kind of in control of Okay. At any given time. So, but no, I do. I enjoy, uh, enjoy, uh, snorkeling, just going in the ocean, doing, you know, bodyboarding and stuff like that. Um, I've, I've never surfed, even though I grew up near the ocean. Um, but I, I enjoy just being around it. So you said you went to med school, EA Trojans, you you chose the right place. And, you know, I kind of like when you said that you were a little, hesitant at first that you made the best decision ever, but it worked out. So two parts of med school. Can you tell my listeners, what was the toughest part during your didactic years? The first two, what subject did you just regret or bad memories from? And the second part of the question would be during the third and fourth year, what was the best part of med school for you where you're like, man, I am ready to, you know, hit the floor running. Right. Um, so yeah, the first two years, uh, as, uh, you know, probably a lot of your listeners know that the first two years of med school, uh, are, are similar, at least in my opinion, they're very similar to undergraduate studies, except just that you are, you know, hyper-focused on, on certain subjects and you're, you know, learning sort of all day long, um, or at least, you know, most of the day. So instead of just a, a lecture that lasts for, you know, an hour or two, and then you're kind of on your own and you come back and you do the TA session or whatever, um, and you're in a group project, it's more just like, here's a bunch of information that you need to get into your skull and you need to understand the physiology of what's going on. Um, and so it is, I mean, in my opinion, it's, it is just a lot of memorization. You know, I think a lot of people 
would say, oh, well, you know, you can't just memorize facts. You need to understand them. And yes, that's true. But that at the end of the day, you know, having having certain things just just committed to your memory that you can pull up in an instant makes it so that you're able to navigate, you know, certain uh, certain problems uh, easier and better. So yeah, those first two years, just a lot of a lot of memorization lecture. So that that part doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't really require learning in much of a different way. If you're already, if you already kind of have a good system for okay. studying and and how you how you acquire information that that is given to you from either a lecture or a textbook or whatever. So what what topic was the most difficult for me? Um, I remember the the neurosciences uh, okay. we did. So I think if I recall at USC at Keck when I was a med student, at least that was the longest block that we did. I want to say it was like two months long of just oh. neuroscience. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that that was tough for me. Um, that was a, a lot of you know doing all the neuroanatomy memories. Yeah. <laughs> parts of the brain and um, all that kind of stuff. So that that one was tough. And the one I liked the most, which yeah. uh, should not be surprising, was endocrinology, which um, <laughs> I, I definitely had no affinity for endocrinology. I barely even knew what the word meant before um, <laughs> the, the endocrine uh, rotation or the endocrine block when I was a second year med student. And um, I really, really enjoyed that. So that kind of got my attention. And then, yeah, third and fourth year. Uh, so then, you know, that that to me is sort of the more radical shift, but also sort of where things start to get a lot more interesting. Um, so being on the on the clinical rotations, uh, getting into the hospital, into the into the clinics, uh, inpatient, outpatient, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that was a that was a a, a big transition. And I was already I enjoyed the first two years because it, it is kind of fun to to really sort of just dive in and learn, you know, all these topics sort of so intensely, but then sort of even takes it to another level once you're once you're actually seeing how it works in in the hospital and in the actual setting. So yeah, that was uh I mean, definitely there were some some long days and long nights on those rotations. Um, but as a med student, you know, you're still relatively protected. Um, but, but it's certainly an adjustment, but, uh, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't any time during all of that where I thought maybe I had made the wrong decision. There were definitely times where I was maybe not, not super stoked on what was going on. Um, I definitely never, never regretted my decision during that time. You know, you had to make the decision during your fourth year sometime to decide mm-hmm. what specialty you go into as far as the broad specialties. So, I mean, I'm, you chose the best, I mean, you know, internal medicine is my jam. So yeah. why weren't you drawn to psychiatry? Why weren't you drawn to being a surgeon? Why don't you want to deliver babies? Some of my favorite doctors are OB-GYN doctors. Sure, why, sure, why did sure. you choose medicine? You know, as I mentioned before, definitely, uh, I was probably at least partially influenced by my, my dad as a role model. Okay. Okay. He's a, a retired, uh, a general internist. He did primary care. Sure. You know, he, I had always seen and, and respected kind of the way that he described his interaction with patients that he was sort of the the one that in some some way was sort of coordinating what was going on and sort okay. of had to have a good understanding of all the what what all the other specialties could offer right um so i thought that was that was cool um and then i i tried to again keep an open mind when i went into medicine like i said when i started undergrad i didn't want to automatically 
you know, pigeonhole myself into going into medicine. And so just like when I started med school, I tried to keep an open mind about different subspecialties. I think that when I was doing my, my surgical rotations, I think surgery is incredible. The fact that you can, you know, rip someone's body open and, and do something inside and then <laughs> back up and you can make them better by doing that. Right. Like it's, or, or take out their pituitary in your case, or take yeah. out their, <laughs> take out their pituitary adenoma, remove their thyroid cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of those things. So, and I have, you know, the, the utmost respect for, for our surgical colleagues. Um, but I honestly just found that when I was in the operating room, I was just kind of like bored and waiting for the next yeah. thing. Good. All right. No, you know, surgery is uh, to, to a surgeon is incredibly exciting and, and all of that. And, um, and I'm glad that they like it, but to me, it just wasn't, it wasn't sort of the, the thing that I, that I envisioned when I saw myself as, as providing care for people, Sure. Um, at least the operating room part of it. Um, yeah. I know a lot of surgeons do many things outside of the operating room too. But so that's why why surgery maybe didn't grab me. I mean, a similar thing, I guess, with with OBGYN. There's, you know, procedures involved with that 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 maybe I wasn't so excited about about getting into. And uh, I know that, you know, there's a lot of critical thinking and and medicine involved in in many aspects of uh of uh, OBGYN as well. But you know, wasn't wasn't just exactly what I was looking for. Psychiatry was almost too much of just pure, uh, ethereal, uh, yeah. for me. Uh, so I thought internal medicine sort of seemed like the, the, the ground where I could, uh, I could still, and I, again, I, I tried to keep an open mind, even when I chose the medicine, um, you know, there are more procedure heavy specialties. There's more, uh, or less procedure heavy specialties. Um, then there's, you know, general internal sin and a lot of general internists do a whole lot of different things. Um, I ended up in endocrinology, which is probably the the least procedure based or the most, uh, sort of up in the, in the clouds, sort of, a of a specialty, but, um, yeah, it seemed like a, like a, a good balance of what I was looking for. When uh, my, my listeners, when I was interacting with, you know, with Braden, it was during that time, during the, the residency years. And I thought we had some really good rotations together. Mm-hmm. You were always smiling. You know, what did I do wrong to not, not make you go into uh, critical care and pulmonary? You know, I mean, you get a couple central lines here and there. There's still some thinking involved in the pulmonary. I mean, oh, what, yeah. what, what could I have done differently to, or, or, or better yet, don't put me on the spot. Why, why did you like glucose and bone health? How did that win? Why endocrinology? <laughs> it's it's not you. It's me, uh, <laughs> Dr. Rush. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the, the central line actually was probably my least favorite things to do in all of okay. um, That was putting in central lines is always very nerve wracking to me. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that, that might've been the one thing that drove way actually the most from okay. critical care. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed my rotations in, in the, the medical ICU as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely I saw, saw a lot of, of, of great outcomes for patients. Um, maybe the thing that was the hardest for me to see was how many, you know, tough outcomes there are to see in the medical ICU. Yeah. All that usually when a, when a patient gets to them yet to the medical ICU, you know, it means they're they're really, really sick. And, and, uh, you know, even the best, most outstanding medical care we have to provide might not be enough. And that for me just, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't sort of what I envisioned as being my, my day to day, I guess. Right. And so 
I have nothing but respect for people who are sort of like, yeah, I want that challenge. I want it every day. And I can accept that, you know, sometimes um, we're going to put up our best fight and the universe is just going to say, sorry, it's just, you're not going to win this one. But, but when I do win a challenge, like that's what I, that's what I want is really to, to, to fight that fight. I think that's awesome for yeah. the, the Dr. Dasguptas out there. <laughs> that. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, I thought, well, the patients I'm going to see are people who, who have, you know, true, true illness, true disease um, and widespread disease, right? Right. Uh, very common uh, type two diabetes, uh, very yep. there, osteoporosis, very common. Uh, so I'm seeing things that are real things that affect lots of people, but, uh, I guess maybe just the, the fact that I, I can have a slow, but steady, uh, change on someone's outcome over, over several years, uh, or, or maybe at least several months, um, is sort of what, what drew me in, I guess. No, I love that. You know, and now this is perfect timing. I love that you mentioned type two diabetes, because I wanted this podcast, this episode with you to be very helpful for everyone, you know, and I think what better way than to pick your mind about disease that affects everyone, which is diabetes. So I have my questions here. And this is a treat for everyone, you're going to hear it from the horse's mouth, the specialist. So forgive me, Braden, if some of these questions are too easy for you. But can we start off with this one, you know, just for the general public, what is diabetes? And what are the two main types of diabetes gotcha. out there? So yeah, I I, uh, I go over this question with uh, with my patients on on a, a daily basis. You know, someone who comes to see me for diabetes. So before I talk about what diabetes is, I usually talk quickly about how does our body usually deal with uh, carbohydrates and and glucose, sugar, right? Okay. So you got to know what's normal before you can fully really grasp what's abnormal. So I, I tell patients that when we consume carbohydrates, they go down into our, our intestines and our body uh, absorbs them from the intestines into the bloodstream. So the first place that those carbohydrates are going to show up is in our uh, bloodstream and our blood sugar level is going to start to go up when that happens. When that happens, our pancreas, uh, which is an organ located in the, at the back of our abdomen behind our stomach, um, the pancreas can, can kind of has like a, a sensor in place where it can see that those glucose levels are starting to go up from the carbohydrates that we consume. And so uh, proteins and fats, the other macronutrients don't really affect uh, this process as much as, as just carbohydrates do. So we're really only talking about uh, carbohydrates here and, and foods that have substantial or significant amounts of carbohydrates. So as blood sugar levels start going up, the pancreas senses this and it releases a hormone called insulin. That hormone is a signal, it's a message. And so uh, that signal gets put into the bloodstream and circulates everywhere in our body from our head to our toes, uh, just like the carbohydrates are. So we've got insulin out there, we've got glucose, sugar out there, they're, they're floating around our bloodstream, going to all these different places. And the, the message that the insulin sends out is it tells the cells of our body, our muscles, our heart, liver, kidneys, you name it, it tells the cells of the body, hey, there's sugar out there, and you should start taking that sugar out of the bloodstream and you should do something with it. You should either um, use it for energy or you should use it to build something, but it doesn't do our body any good to just have all this extra sugar floating around in the bloodstream. So let's pull it out and start using it for things. 
So this process goes on while we're digesting and absorbing more carbohydrates out of our intestines. Um, so then our blood sugar levels sort of reach a, a peak or a plateau while that's happening, because as the carbohydrates are getting pulled in from the intestines, they're simultaneously also then getting pulled out into the cells of our body. Eventually, we run out of carbohydrates to absorb because we, we absorb all the carbohydrates that were in that meal that we just consumed. And so then the blood sugar levels start coming back down again because there's no more carbohydrates flowing in from the intestines, but there's still carbohydrates flowing out um, into the cells of the body due to the signal from the insulin. So then as the blood sugar levels start going down, the pancreas stops making insulin, stops sending insulin out there. Um, so then the cells of the body stop sucking the glucose out of the bloodstream and they leave it in there. Um, so that then the blood sugar levels will, will, uh, end up stabilizing and, and kind of going into our, uh, normal ambulatory, uh, you know, walking around kind of, uh, glucose levels. Um, and we don't want those glucose levels to go down too low because no, we don't. <laughs> one, one part of our body that, that really relies exclusively on glucose for energy. And that's our brain. So our brain does not require that signal from insulin to use uh, glucose. Our brain just uses glucose all the time. Um, and so that's why we, we don't need, we don't want blood sugar levels that are too high because it doesn't do our body any good to have a whole bunch of extra sugar in the bloodstream, but we don't want our blood sugar levels too low because otherwise our brain shuts off and then we lose consciousness and it's no fun lying on the floor. Um, so, uh, that's kind of how the system works normally type one diabetes. So there's two, two main types of diabetes, uh, in terms of, you know, if we're trying to simplify it down, yeah. um, to, to sort of, uh, uh, easy to, to, to conceptualize points here. There's type one diabetes, type two diabetes, type one diabetes occurs when something destroys the pancreas's ability to make insulin. Or in other words, the body just is not able to make enough insulin, even though the insulin is, it, it, it has its desired effect once it's out there, it's just the pancreas doesn't make as much insulin as it's supposed to. Um, this is usually due to autoimmune destruction of the beta cells in the pancreas, the cells that make insulin. Although anything else that damages the pancreas could also lead to something that looks like type one diabetes. Although most commonly it's due to the, this autoimmune destruction. Two diabetes is the pancreas still makes insulin. And in fact, in most patients with type two diabetes, the pancreas makes lots of insulin. Um, so the problem is not the production of insulin, but the problem is what we call insulin resistance. Um, and so I, I say that this is like, uh, imagine that the cells of the body that are supposed to be pulling that sugar out of the bloodstream, it's like they're wearing earmuffs. So they get part of the message. They hear some of it. So they take some of the glucose out, but they leave a lot of it in there and they leave too much of it in there. Um, so the end result with type two diabetes is that when somebody consumes carbohydrates, um, that, that upswing on their, on their glucose while they're digesting the carbohydrates, it goes up probably faster and also for longer. So it takes longer for that, that sort of plateau to get reached. So their peak is higher and then it takes longer for their levels to come back down to okay. some desired, uh, normal level, uh, after the meal, because even though the pancreas is pumping out all this insulin, its effects are, are sort of only, only part way what, uh, what would be expected. So let me, let me ask this, let me throw one dorky comment out there before we get to the next question. So I love that explanation. I was almost going to take notes right there. Like, so when we're talking about the carbohydrate part of it, I can't help but think of a, a category of medication from med school 
called the alpha glucosidase inhibitors, you know, and I guess the brand name of one of the drugs is a carbose, you know, Mm -hmm. and that prevents you from absorbing carbohydrates. It sounds ingenious now, like, all right, the main problem is absorbing too much carbohydrates and blood sugars go up. So was that one of the first medications out there? And is it true that you only give our carbose to patients you hate? Uh, uh, well, I, I, I don't really have anybody on acarbos, so I guess so because I, I like everybody. Um, but yes, acarbos is a is the, an older drug. Um, I actually don't don't know the uh, the exact date it was approved. <laughs> probably figured out real quick here, though. Oh, uh, look at you! You're so like technical technology uh, okay. savvy right here. So actually, I guess the the FDA approval it says was not. As long ago as you might think, it says. Give me the date. Give me the date. I'm curious. It was approved in 1999. I would uh, thought like the 70s and 80s, man. That's yeah. recent. Um, there wow. might have been there might have been other um, alpha okay. inhibitors. Yeah. Well, this website says it was approved in 1995. Yeah. Somewhere in the 1990s. All right. Maybe there were other alpha glucosidase inhibitors yep. um, before a carbose that we just don't use anymore. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, yes, you're right. Uh, so, so this medication, it's not necessarily a a, a real new medication, but uh, yes, it works by inhibiting the breakdown of um, of carbohydrates in the intestines and in the the brush border. And so, by doing that, um, the the carbohydrates stay intact and they stay in the intestines for longer. So it, but it does two things. Number one, uh, the carbohydrates that do get absorbed, get absorbed uh, more slowly. So then um, it takes longer for the carbohydrates to show up in the bloodstream. So you get a more gradual rise in the blood sugar levels uh, after eating, which, you know, when you imagine that the, the pancreas is trying to make as much insulin as it can to try and get those blood sugars down, that it's going to be easier for the pancreas to control the blood sugars if they're going up gradually, as opposed to if they're going up very quickly. And then the other thing is that the, a lot of carbohydrates end up not getting absorbed. They end up staying in the intestinal tract. And what happens when that happens? Right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> as you mentioned, this is, uh, this is for your enemies. Um, so then the carbohydrates that stay undigested um, in the uh, gastrointestinal tract end up uh, causing the main side effects of a carbose, which really sort of limit its clinical <laughs> which are um, uh, increased diarrhea and increased flatulence. So yeah. <laughs> why, uh, why a lot of patients uh, who start on it end up not really taking it for very long, although it ends yeah. up being um, effective, not only for the mechanisms that we talked about, but also because um, some people who take a carbose end up losing weight because they have okay. gastrointestinal side effects and they know that the more food that they eat, the more side effects they're going to have. Um, so a lot of people end up losing weight while they're on it, which ends up, you know, it's not necessarily the the healthiest way to lose weight, but (laughs) uh, lead to weight loss. And we know that being overweight and, uh, and being obese, having excess, uh, adipose tissue, fat tissue in the body is a, a risk factor or contributes to insulin resistance. So it is an effective medication. It's just difficult for uh, most patients to stick with. And oh, yeah. so therefore has not really, has not really caught on as a, a commonly used medication. 
No, and for the, the med students, that is the wrong answer on the board exams. <laughs> but but uh, let, me, let me ask you this question. So on type 2 diabetes, and we're going to focus on that because, uh, I mean, that's the one that we see the most in society. That's the most prevalent type of diabetes. And I, I guess the questions are going to be, what are the symptoms the general public should look for when you talk about diabetes? And can having poorly controlled diabetes, what are some other medical problems that can occur if we don't address this problem to begin with, which is diabetes? Sure. So um, to address the first question about, about symptoms, this, yes. one of the, the, the biggest problems with type 2 diabetes is that initially, early on, there usually are no symptoms whatsoever. Ah. So when a, when a patient would first sort of meet our diagnostic criteria, and I'll get to what, where those criteria came from in a second, mm-hmm. When a patient initially meets those criteria for um, the diagnosis of of type 2 diabetes, most patients are completely asymptomatic. Um, Most patients say, oh, you know, I never would have known, which is why screening for type 2 diabetes is so important because people uh, are at risk for developing complications and can benefit from treatment long before they are symptomatic. Uh, screening for diabetes uh, is is definitely an important part of of preventive medicine uh, because uh, most people are not going to be symptomatic. So what 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 are those screening guidelines? I, I don't even know. You're going to teach me right now. So for the general public, is it like just yearly labs making a fasting or? Uh, so it's it's a not a a 100 agreed upon answer about who. And under what circumstances should people be trained for diabetes? But uh, I think that that everybody agrees that over the age of about um, 40 or so, uh, at the age of 40, that anybody who is overweight or obese should should get screened for diabetes. Um, Anybody with a strong family history should get screened. So uh, any direct uh, uh, blood relatives who have diabetes. Uh, anybody who has a history of maybe other diseases that could be affected by it, uh, specifically like cardiovascular disease, or people who are of uh, certain high-risk groups should be screened. And if your initial screen is normal, then probably rescreening every three years is appropriate. If your initial screen shows that you have what we call pre-diabetes, meaning you do not meet the diagnostic criteria for diabetes, you don't necessarily need uh, drug treatment, pharmacologic treatment for diabetes, but you, we know that people that are in that category of prediabetes have an increased risk of developing diabetes later on, then those people should be rescreened about once a year, once okay. a year, once at least. For people that are over 40 who are not obese or overweight, um, as I said, if they have some of those other high-risk characteristics, it's certainly reasonable to screen them, uh, you know, at least every couple of years. And honestly, for, for pretty much any adult, even if they don't have any of those risk factors, I think it's certainly reasonable to, to screen, you know, at least once every three years or so, even if their, uh, their test results, their screening results are normal. For people under the age of uh, 40, um, it's a little less clear, but I think still probably for, for people that are overweight or obese, um, screening you know, every couple of years is, is still probably a good idea. For women who are going to get pregnant, getting screened for diabetes before pregnancy is not necessarily universally recommended, although it's certainly reasonable. But then um, every woman, at least uh, in, in many countries, is going to 
end up getting screened for gestational diabetes with an oral glucose tolerance test during their pregnancy if they don't have a pre-existing diagnosis of, uh, of diabetes prior to the pregnancy. Well, uh, well let me, let me, people are going to be asking this question now. I feel it already. So uh, <laughs> the question is going to be, let's, let's talk about some of these, these tests, but let me just make sure the, the listeners understand, you know, we're talking about screening. Screening is something we do in, in people who have without symptoms. We call that asymptomatic. So we're talking about diagnostic testing now, which are the same tests we use for screening. But remember, once again, that's a great point that he brought up as you probably have no symptoms in type 2 diabetes. So what are going to be now I'm going to say four. So I'm going to put you on the spot. So and tell me if I'm wrong. What are the, the, the four screening diagnostic tests that you use to give someone the diagnosis of diabetes? We'll start with with the test that's used probably the least often, and that's the the one that I brought up already, which is the oral glucose tolerance test. And so, test where you you have someone come into your office, uh, you measure their blood glucose level at baseline, you have them drink this pre-specified sugary beverage, this beverage that has a, a, a set amount of sugar in it measure their glucose at either one and or two or three hours uh, afterwards. This is a test that is only used to screen for diabetes in certain circumstances. Um, And the the two circumstances that are used most commonly, the one that people are going to hear about is in pregnancy. And the other one that is probably less well known is in uh, cystic fibrosis. Oh, okay. Um, but um, so this this is still a test that could be done in in some other groups, but it's really only in those two groups, pregnancy and cystic fibrosis, where the the oral glucose tolerance test is sort of the preferred screening test. So, um, wait, so are you making these patients sit in your office two hours after you make them chug this Mountain Dew drink or do you, do you send them home or how no, do you get the two got, hour well, value? Well, they got to stay there uh, because you want to see the peak glucose level, the peak sugar level after consuming the sugary beverage. And so that takes up to as long as two or three hours after uh, after consuming it. So, uh, I mean, I guess if they wanted to go home, uh, they could. But I think most of the time people end up just staying in the office and uh, and waiting to get their blood drawn. And that value is more than 200. Am I making up that number in two hours? Is that the cutoff? For gestational diabetes, there's actually lots of different systems and cutoffs that are used and there's not sort of one okay. uh, agreed upon system. So, yeah. and the numbers are sort of in, in the system that we use here are, are sort of these random cutoffs. And yeah. sort of, <laughs> they're not a multiple of 10 or a multiple of five. That's easy yeah. to remember. Yeah. Um, but um, for non-gestational diabetes, yep. um, then yes, uh, we're, we're looking at a cutoff of, of 200. Gotcha. That's the one that jumps in my mind for some yeah. reason. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so we got that one. What, what's the other one? So what's number two? So then, I, and just to, yeah, to be clear, I hardly ever order oral glucose tolerance tests. Um, mm-hmm. Almost never do because I'm, I'm usually not the one who is screening someone for gestational diabetes or screening someone with CF for diabetes. I'm usually seeing them after they have based on the screening test. So I pretty much never order oral glucose tolerance tests. So then the other test that you mentioned, the most uh, common one that I would use is the hemoglobin A1C level. What what is it for the, the, the general public? What is a hemoglobin A1C? So hemoglobin as a quick review, these are the, uh, the molecules that carry oxygen within our red blood cells um, around our body. 
And so in our blood, we've got, we've got hemoglobin and we've got uh, sugar among other things, but we we've observed that the, the more sugar there is around a molecule of hemoglobin, the more likely it is that a sugar might come and attach itself to one of those hemoglobins. Now, when this happens, the hemoglobin still works. It can still carry oxygen. It can still do all of its normal. Thank God. (laughs) Yes, thank God. Um, It just has a has a little uh, a little sugar friend hanging off of it. Okay. Um, And this happens. uh, What we have found is that the um, the sugar doesn't sort of bounce off and and on and off. It's once it's on there, it's on that hemoglobin molecule for the rest of the lifespan of that hemoglobin molecule until the body breaks it down into its individual components and recycles and makes a new hemoglobin. But that's like, uh, that's about like 120 days, right? About, yeah, about a hundred, 120 days. And so that's kind of where this three month uh, mark comes from, where we say your hemoglobin A1C level correlates to roughly what is your average uh, glucose level uh, over the past three months. So this is assuming that, that during times when your blood sugar is high, that that you're attaching more glucose molecules to your hemoglobins out there. And this assumes that when your glucose is low um, or, or normal, I guess, uh, that you're attaching fewer glucose molecules to, to your hemoglobins. So that's why it sort of takes all of your highs, all of your lows, all of your averages and smushes it all into one number um, and gives you a rough uh, average. And what is that number for, what's the memorized number here, Braden? What, what number says, uh-oh, you've now hit type 2 diabetes? So uh, 6.5%, which is how we measure hemoglobin A1C um, in this country using uh, percent, meaning what percent of all of your hemoglobin molecules out there in your body, what percent of them are, uh, uh, have a sugar attached to them. Um, So um, we we set our cutoff for diagnosing diabetes at 6.5%, What about this pre-diabetes thing? Where where, where, where does that fall into the number of diabetes? um, uh, The number to memorize there would be um, the upper limit would be at six and a half percent. The lower limit would be down at 5.7%. Okay. Okay. So if you're between 5.7% and, you know, 6.49%, then you would fall into that category of pre-diabetes or at risk for diabetes, at increased risk for developing diabetes. Now, now if someone goes to a clinic, maybe not your clinic, is there an A1C you can stick in the finger or does it always have to be a blood work? Uh, no, they, they, you can get what we call point of care uh, hemoglobin. Yeah measurements. So that means that just like you said, instead of going to the lab and drawing the blood and sending the blood to the lab and then waiting for the result to come back from the lab, um, you can uh, poke someone's finger, get um, a couple of drops of uh, capillary blood out of their finger and can do a test that comes back in about five minutes. Now, is that going to be as accurate as checking a glucose? Because I know many things when you do a finger stick glucose, so many things factor into it. Is the A1C more accurate when you get it from a finger stick? Are you going to make fun of it and say, "Uh uh-uh, you need to go to the lab and go to the vein and repeat Mm -hmm. that? Very good question. And I, I, you know, I don't have any, any numbers or statistics in front of me that I can quote to you. But what I can tell you is that I think just like any other test that you do, if you're doing a version that's, you know, portable, quick, fast, you have to sacrifice something, right? You yeah. know, those benefits. And so what you are sacrificing is, is accuracy. And um, I will say that in the past, just sort of by uh, coincidence or, or serendipity or whatever you want to call it, um, I've had patients who got 
a point of care A1C done, and then either on the same day or or very close when you wouldn't expect that the A1C should have changed by very much, they also got one done from a, a standard venous blood draw. And yeah. the values are sometimes substantially different. Oh, man. Okay. So, um, okay. so sometimes they're not. They're usually yeah. within a couple of percentage points. Sure. Okay. Sometimes you'll look and, you know, it might be enough where you would say, wow, this actually sort of changes my, my recommendation to this person. Um, of course. So, uh, I think that, I think they, they have a role and I think they are useful, especially if you're seeing a patient and you don't have any other blood tests that you're going to get. This is the only test that you really need yep. to see from them is just their A1C. Um, then yeah, I think it makes sense to do the, the finger stick test. And, um, if you get a value that's clearly, above your goal or clearly, you know, well at your goal, then maybe you don't need to send that patient to get another venous blood draw. But otherwise, you do kind of have to take the results you get with a grain of salt. So let's close loop on this. Let's talk about three and four. And I'm assuming we're going to talk about the main character here, glucose. So what's the the, the last two ways that we're going to be diagnosing diabetes? Uh, another one that that maybe is not used as often, but a um, a random glucose level. You read my mind. You read my mind. You get you any and any glucose level any time of day, um, and that glucose level is over two hundred milligrams mm-hmm. deciliter. Whether the patient has been you know eating, not eating, on you know medications, whatever. If the glucose is over two hundred, and uh, they specify in the uh, most diagnostic criteria, like from the ADA um, and other societies, they say that you have to have typical symptoms of hyperglycemia. So initially we said that most of the time, or a lot of the time, especially in the early stages, diabetes is going to be asymptomatic. So the point of, of why they add this in there is this is to rule out the people who might just have a transient one high glucose level because they got um, a dose of a, of a, a steroid that, that might cause a very temporary transient increase in their blood sugar levels that they're sure. away later. So uh, a random glucose level that's over 200 in somebody who has uh, typical symptoms of hyperglycemia, which uh, uh, the symptoms we look for there uh, tend to be polyuria, meaning urinating a lot, making a lot of urine, which occurs mm-hmm. Because uh, if you have chronically have blood sugar levels that are so high that that you have sugar spilling over into your urine, it's dragging water into your uh, into your your kidney and down into your bladder um, along with it. Then a lot of people who have chronically very high blood sugar levels end up um, making a lot of urine, so they urinate more. They they have to drink more water to replace um, that urine that's going out of their body. So we call that polydipsia when someone. Yep. Is- thirsty all the time. They feel like they're constantly having to drink water. And then uh, people who have chronic hyperglycemia that is not treated actually end up losing weight a lot of the time. And a lot of weight loss, it might be due to fluid losses because they're urinating so much and they're not able to keep up with the fluid losses by drinking water. Although another part of it uh, is is probably that, uh, remember we talked about how insulin helps our body really sort of 
uh, harness the energy of those carbohydrates in our bloodstream. So if your blood sugar levels get really, really high, you're, you're losing out on all of that energy because it's all just sitting in your bloodstream, not being used. Yeah. So what a waste. People go into a, um, a, what we call a catabolic state, meaning they're they're They have to, uh, chew up their own you know, muscles and fat tissue just to have enough energy to keep going, um, until they get treatment, which then can help their body actually utilize the carbohydrates for energy. Then the last one, so we had a, we had the random, and we know its limitations. So I guess the last one, if it's not a random, would it be a a fasting? Would be the last one. You are correct. So a fasting blood sugar, a fasting for at least eight hours. So no. Uh, nothing to eat and nothing to drink except just uh, plain water for at least eight hours prior. If a fasting glucose level is uh, 126 milligrams per deciliter or higher, then that would also uh, meet the diagnostic criteria for uh, diabetes. So this is assuming that somebody who has type two diabetes, that even if you give them eight hours without any carbohydrate intake, um, that they are not able to get their glucose levels down below 126, um, even after eight hours. And where these cutoffs came from, where these, these diagnostic criteria came from was um, studies where they looked at you know, huge populations of people and they said, okay, well, where can we actually start to see physical differences in people? Where can we actually see that somebody has a, a physical complication that's different from somebody who has lower blood sugar levels, right? So yeah. A1C, for example. So they said, okay, what about someone with an A1C of 5.9? Well, do they have any manifestations that are different from somebody with an A1C of 5.8 or lower? And it seemed like mm, most of the time, no, not really. So then they just kind of kept marching up. What about 6.0, 6.1, 6.2, 6.3, 6.4? And it seemed like maybe around 6.5. And obviously this is not universal because everybody's body and everybody's sensitivity uh, to hyperglycemia and whatnot is different. But they said that that, that maybe around a a glucose or an average glucose level, an A1C of about 6.5%, that we can actually start to see physical changes in that person's body. Oh, wow. Chronic hyperglycemia. Okay. And the, the first finding that most people will usually see, um, and so now this kind of gets to your question about what, what parts of the body actually get um, affected or, or yeah. by high blood sugar levels. And so the first area that, that we might see uh, get damaged by chronically high blood sugar levels is the retina, um, which is the back of the eye. That's where light that enters our pupil, our eyeball, then goes back and sort of gets like projected on this screen um, that's at the back of our eyeball. And then our, uh, our brain sort of interprets that signal. But um, the blood vessels that serve the retina that bring um, nutrients and oxygen to the retina have sort of been been calibrated to work at a very uh, specific range of glucose levels. And so those levels are chronically above that range. You can start to see damage to the retinal blood vessels. Oh, wow. And so most of the time when they were doing those studies and they were saying, okay, where can we see that, that there's actually this difference between this group of people and this group of people. And they decided it was at 6.5% and higher. It was because, um, in, in a lot of the studies that that was where they started to see just the very, 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 very beginnings of what we call diabetic retinopathy. So um, diabetic changes to the retina. 
as opposed to people at lower A1C levels who generally uh, are not at risk of developing retinopathy. And of course, there are some people who might have A1Cs a little bit lower than 6.5% who might develop retinopathy. There's definitely plenty of people who have A1Cs that are higher than 6.5% who may never develop retinopathy. But it seemed like that was kind of the inflection point where where the, the risk started to become more apparent. No, I mean, that story was amazing. And I'm, I'm excited in a dorky way because there's very few places in the body where you could look inside the body on a physical examination. Right. And this makes sense if you do a study like that, because you could examine the eye and see these changes. And let me ask you this to put you on the spot. Do you have your ophthalmoscope on you? And do you are, are you looking in the back of the eye? Now, don't lie to me. Are you looking in the back of the eye when they come in there or do you send them right to the optometrist and ophthalmologist right away? I would never lie to you, Dr. Raj. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and to be perfectly honest, I usually don't. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that is just that the, you know, the, the ability of, uh, of an ophthalmologist or, a, you know, probably most ophthalmologists and optometrists are, um, are using, you know, uh, high, high quality cameras and things like that to take pictures of the retina Yeah, and what the retina looks like. Um, is just so much above any anything that I that I could offer with my uh, my ophthalmoscope, and also it probably wouldn't wouldn't change a whole lot of what I do. Okay, our our glycemic targets, even though yes, they are there to help us um, try and prevent those complications. Um, if I looked in someone's eye and I said, Oh, you don't have any retinopathy. I wouldn't then say, Oh, well, you don't need to worry about, you know, getting your, your glucose under control because I want to prevent them from ever developing retinopathy. And if I looked in someone's eye and I saw that they, um, already had retinopathy, then I guess you could make the argument that that might motivate the patient more to go out there and, and, you know, really do a better job of controlling their glucose. But I personally uh, do not do my own retinal exam. I think that uh, an eye care specialist uh, like an optometrist or an ophthalmologist uh, is going to get the best view of the, of the retina and be able to give the, the, uh, the best uh, sort of assessment. Well, I want to, I'm going to get to these last two, but I just want to make sure I like finished because you reminded me about my statement about symptoms. So would I be wrong, uh, Braden, to say that, you know, in broad strokes, what organs can be affected by diabetes? I guess almost every organ in the body. And we kind of thinking about two brain types, the, the macrovascular complications to make people worried about heart disease and, and stroke and peripheral vascular disease. And then what we're talking about is what we call like the microvasculature, like things like the eye and maybe the kidney and nerves. Is that, is that a, a correct yeah, statement? You, you're absolutely correct. So the, the, the complications that we that we have really sort of proven have a very direct relationship to the degree of hyperglycemia of elevated blood sugar levels are the retinopathy, which we discussed. The other microvascular complications are the, the kidneys, which we call diabetic nephropathy and uh, certain uh, uh, types of nerves in the body, um, especially the, the small nerves at the tips of our, our feet and in some cases our hands. Um, and so we call that diabetic neuropathy. And so the, the, these large studies that have been done are, have shown pretty conclusively that, that the better you control someone's glucose, the more you reduce their risk of developing those microvascular complications. And the higher someone's glucose is, the, the higher their risk of developing those microvascular complications. And that has to do with damaging those very small, very delicate 
um, very finely calibrated blood vessels um, that serve those organs. The macrovascular complications that you brought up. So this is really looking at um, cardiovascular disease. So heart attacks, uh, strokes, and um, peripheral artery disease. Those also definitely are, uh, we see them much more commonly in people who have diabetes. Um, there's no doubt about that. And we're finding now that, that there are treatments for diabetes that help decrease blood sugar levels and also help decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease. Although um, that is a more, uh, or, a, or I should say, a relatively newer um, finding um, that, that really our, our data up until just the past you know, several years was more focused on, on microvascular outcomes. And we didn't have as much to talk about macrovascular outcomes. This is a good like segue. So the last two broad questions are broad. You know, it's going to be talking about, I'm sure you have patients or know family members and everyone listening today probably knows the family member has someone with diabetes. So let's say, you know, my dad has diabetes for real and my, my relatives do. I'm a little bit, I can use a little exercise myself, Brayden, I won't lie to you. Is there anything I can do to prevent me from developing type 2 diabetes? What can I tell the listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we all have room for improvement. Uh, <laughs> Rush. You always make me feel better. You always but make me feel better. You and I included. So <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier, what are the risk factors for developing type 2 diabetes? Well, probably the biggest risk factor, the one that, that sort of probably has the biggest connection to the, the development of type 2 diabetes is actually one that we can't change. And that's our, that's our DNA. That's it. It's in our genetics. And we know that, that type 2 diabetes, especially even more than type 1 diabetes, um, is actually tied to, um, to genetics and, and family history. So it's not necessarily something we can change, but it is something that we can help use to inform um, uh, our own risk. So then uh, we know that patients that are, are overweight and obese, patients that are carrying um, extra adipose tissue, extra fat tissue in their body, um, that they are at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later on. And so what has also been shown is that losing that weight reduces the risk. Okay. So people that are, that are overweight or obese, weight loss in any amount um, has been shown to help reduce the risk of, of developing type 2 diabetes. Um, and so the, you know, the two components of, of weight loss are dietary modifications and increased physical activity, right? Sure. Um, dietary modification. Um, there's lots of different, you know, things out there that that uh, that I'm sure you and your listeners have heard about, including you know intermittent fasting and keto diet and all those sorts. Of yeah, things. we definitely don't have time to go into all of those. But what I will say is that there's there's data to support using all kinds of different um, uh, you know diets and and food plans and all that kind of uh, uh, things out there. There's not one right or wrong way out there and different plans are good for different people. Um, and if someone is really serious about making a, a, a weight loss plan and making a meal plan and talking with a, a registered dietitian or a nutrition educator might be a really good idea. I refer um, almost any of my patients that are, that are willing to do it to talk with a registered dietitian. And then physical activity. I have a lot of patients ask me, you know, what, what type of exercise is best? What type of exercise should I be doing? Mm -hmm. and the answer is any type of exercise. Is, okay. Um, there's not, you know, good exercise or bad exercise, you know, anything that, that gets the heart going, kind of gets people burning calories and, and breaking a sweat. Um, those are all going to be good. Those are all going to burn calories. Those are all going to uh, increase your, your metabolism. So um, all of those are, are good things to do. And then in terms of uh, other things besides just uh, diet and, and, and exercise and weight loss, 
we know that that smoking also, uh, even though it it probably it, it it might not increase the risk of type two diabetes itself very much, um, but it definitely increases the risk of complications um, from diabetes. So. Yeah. Um, I, as a pulmonologist, I'm sure this is a, pa- a topic that you're very passionate about, but uh, quitting smoking or at least reducing the amount of smoking or uh, for people who already smoke and avoiding starting smoking for people who don't. And um, alcohol consumption um, probably also doesn't help. Um, although, you know, that's a whole nother talk that I'm sure you could do is, you know, the pluses and minuses of, you know, moderate alcohol consumption. Is it really protective or not? Um, but certainly we know that, uh, that, uh, alcohol abuse, uh, drinking yeah. in excess, um, probably does not help, uh, with, with either the development of diabetes or preventing its complications. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, what more of a question than a statement. So would you say Braden for myself, would, would a good first step for me be taking the sour patch kids I have next to my bed mm-hmm. in my little drawer that's hidden? Should I remove those? Would that be a good first step? <laughs> Um, good question. Uh, so, so yeah, car- carbohydrate restriction. Right? So the, the natural assumption is what you just said, uh, that if we, if we get rid of the Sour Patch Kid, get rid of the sugar, you, you then no diabetes, right? And it probably is true that that restricting carbohydrate intake and definitely restricting, yeah, the, the simple sugars, right? The, the stuff that we really know has no, uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, Dr. Raj, that has no nutritional value like... Uh, <sighs> like your, your, your bedside stash. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit this part out because I want, <laughs> you, yeah, you don't want, you don't want, you don't want to live in a world where you can't enjoy that. But, um, but yeah, so probably those do, yeah. help. although honestly, um, you know, when, when they've studied, you know, do, does a low carb diet necessarily prevent diabetes and sort of mixed results in, in yep. some ways, but, but certainly it seems like it doesn't hurt. And yes, definitely. Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of two different carbohydrates, uh, that we can talk about. We can talk about simple carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates and, yeah. um, simple carbohydrates, especially things like candy, uh, uh, pastries, you know, things that are really, really sweet, which, Hey, I eat them too, but, <laughs> but definitely those, those do not really have any sort of, uh, uh, nutritionally, uh, vindicating value, unfortunately, um, and probably do cause you to have, um, increases in your glucose. Do they actually increase your risk of, of diabetes? If, if they cause you to gain weight, if they make it harder for you to lose weight, if you're overweight or obese, then probably yes. But, you know, eaten in moderation um, probably don't have uh, too much of a bad effect. And then the complex carbohydrates, things made from whole wheat, whole grain types of carbohydrates like that, um, those are, are probably not going to be a huge contributor, although um, there's, there's mounting evidence that certainly uh, moderating your intake of those is, is probably a good idea as well. Man, I love how you took my, my, my jovial statement to like this awesome scientific answer. Oh my God. But uh, I mean, maybe I'm teaching you something here, but you know, I also do sleep medicine. And one of the things that there has been scientific association is, is sleep apnea, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, that's one where, where my team and your team of endocrinologists kind of team up a little bit. And it's more like chicken and the egg. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Poorly controlled diabetes type two, you're obese, you got sleep apnea. Is the sleep apnea making it worse? So can I put that on your list of risk factors? If you think you have sleep apnea, absolutely. get evaluated oh, no. for both. You know what I mean? For All sure. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it, it fits in with the whole, the whole, yeah. Sleep apnea is definitely part of the whole picture of uh, you know, metabolic issues that all kind of go, go with the same topic that we're talking about. I completely agree. 
Cool. And, you know, for the last one, I got to tell you, it's amazing how fast the time went. I mean, I, I got some really super dork questions, but I think we're going to save the, the, the real in-depth for my, my part two with you down the line, because I assume you, you had a good time, right? You're having a good time. Great time. Great All right. Time. So let, let's finish on this. I got to tell you something about treatment. You know, I just have to. It wouldn't be a closed circle. So let's say someone gets diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We'll keep it simple because we could go uh, far away. I'm sure the number one question people ask you is, Hey, Dr. Braden, you, you diagnosed me with type 2 diabetes. Am I going to have to go on insulin? Yeah. How do you address that? And then after that, I'll give you my, my, my last question is going to be mm-hmm. in regards to oral meds, what would be your, your go-to? But can you address the insulin question first and then we'll yes. call the day? So insulin uh, is, you know, probably the, the, the oldest uh, medication that we, that we use to treat diabetes of, of either type. And I actually think I love that you're doing this live. This is great. I wanted to make sure that, um, (laughs) that yes, this is the 100 year anniversary of the discovery of insulin by, by Banting and Best, um, at the university of Toronto, 1921. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've, we've known about it for a hundred years and, um, started using it, uh, in, I think the year after in 1922, they tried using it, um, for the first time. So for patients with type one diabetes, um, uh, unfortunately they, their only treatment option really is, is insulin. Um, there yeah. are these, uh, sort of, uh, uh, other treatments that have been added on top of insulin that, that can tried in patients with type one diabetes, although none of them are, are really technically FDA approved. Um, but, uh, uh, insulin is, is an absolute must for every patient with type one diabetes, at least for the current time being, um, for patients with type two diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, I think we, we probably used to have more patients, um, on insulin than we do now because we just didn't have as many treatment options. Um, but insulin is, is really not an ideal treatment for, for many patients with type two diabetes. Okay. Um, there are some patients with type two diabetes who are well served by, by insulin, but for some other patients with type two diabetes, um, insulin may not be an ideal treatment for a couple of reasons. One is that obviously insulin is an injection, which is, less convenient, um, than, uh, something that's not an injection. Um, insulin, at least in this country is quite expensive actually. Um, okay. Um, again, is a a whole nother Another podcast, (laughs) you know, I'm not necessarily a great, uh, on that topic, but what I can tell you is that yes, insulin is, uh, in this country, not, not cheap. Um, it's actually relatively expensive. Uh, insulin, has the potential to uh, over-treat patients and cause hypoglycemia. So remember sure. we about how um, when the pancreas sees that that blood sugar is going down after we reach our, our peak, our plateau, and it starts coming down, then the pancreas turns the insulin off. Well, if you inject someone with insulin into their skin, um, that insulin is going to get absorbed no matter what you do and no matter what's going on with your blood sugar. That little, uh, uh, that little ball of, of insulin that's getting absorbed after an injection doesn't know what your glucose is. And so that's why um, people who use insulin injections run the risk of developing low blood sugars or hypoglycemia. Um, and then finally, the use of insulin in a lot of people leads to weight gain. And wow. The reason for that is, as we were talking about earlier, when you've got all this, all this sugar, all these carbohydrates that are sitting in your bloodstream, 
and they're not being used for energy or to build things that a lot of people end up losing weight if their blood sugars get high enough. If you put them on insulin, now their body is harnessing all of that energy. They're drawing all of those carbohydrates out of the bloodstream. So then they might start taking those carbohydrates and turning them into fat cells. So that's one source of weight gain. And then also probably they're going to stop uh, urinating as much as they were before. So then they're going to uh, start holding on to more uh, fluid and they might gain some fluid weight as well. So um, it's sort of uh, this, this cruel cycle that patients get put into where their doctor's telling them you've got to lose weight, you got to work on losing weight. And then we put them on insulin and they gain weight um, because of the insulin. So, so it's, it's not an ideal treatment. Um, although to be clear, uh, if you know, there's people out there whose doctor who they, they have type two diabetes and their doctor put them on insulin, your doctor may have a good reason for putting you on. Sure. Insulin. And yep. There certainly are patients with type two diabetes who, who need to be on insulin or who are best suited for insulin therapy. But I think that the, the movement and sort of the the goal is to try and avoid using insulin in patients with type 2 diabetes yeah. possible. And so that's why um, there are uh, newer medications that, um, that are coming out, that have come out over the past um, 15, 20 years and new medications that will continue to come out in the next 15 and 20 years that are hopefully going to make insulin less and less relevant for patients with type 2 diabetes and, uh, and, and hopefully make it so we have other options that, that don't uh, predispose people to low blood sugars, don't cause weight gain, and don't have uh, the other uh, sort of undesirable consequences of insulin therapy. Well, this is, once again, great setup for my, my final question. I was going to give you the broader thing, which I think is going to be our next podcast together with you, which would be, we could do an hour on just treatment itself. But if you had a pick, now I'm assuming me and you are always on the same wavelength and we think the same. So don't let me down here. Okay. So if you had a type two diabetic who had, you know, good kidney function, everything is doing fine and a little bit on the overweight side, and you had to pick one drug, just one drug of the variety out there that would probably be probably the most best first initial treatment orally for a type two diabetic, what would you pick? Because I'm already thinking of one that I want you to talk about, but I'm, I'm a little scared here. What do you, what do you, what would you want? Answer, everybody's answer or almost everybody's answer is going to be metformin. Yes. My answer is. And you talk about metformin, do you? Is that the right answer first off or is that the wrong answer? Um, in my mind, it, it still remains the right answer. Oh, um, thank God. Okay. I mean, there might be people out there who disagree, but I think yep. all, the, all of the, you know, societies and, and medical groups out there that make yep. recommendations on on the treatment of type two diabetes, uh, I think there's there is still consensus that metformin remains okay. one treatment. Um, metformin is an uh, an orally administered medication, uh, sure. a, a tablet um, that that helps uh, reduce insulin resistance. It helps uh, reduce what we call gluconeogenesis, or that's the the sort of uh, synthesis and secretion of of glucose um, from other uh, raw ingredients from the liver, um, which our body does when it is only really supposed to do when we are sort of running low on glucose and we need sort of an emergency supply. But often in patients with um, type two diabetes, uh, uh, their their glucose kind of gets or their their liver gets mixed signals. And, and kind of starts doing that on its own. But 
Um, so metformin remains our, our number one first-line treatment for diabetes for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is that it's administered orally instead of an injection, and so that's sure. easier for, for people to get started with. Number two, uh, metformin does not cause hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. That's huge, right? Yeah. So metformin can take patients who have high blood sugars and can help bring them down into sort of our, our goal range. But um, metformin by itself does not cause hypoglycemia. Um, basically, you can think of it as, you know, if somebody who has uh, normal blood sugar levels takes metformin, that um, the, 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 the mechanism by which metformin works sort of uh, can't complete the circuit if the patient's not hyperglycemic. There might be other benefits to people taking metformin who have normal blood sugar levels. Again, a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but um, but uh, for people with diabetes, the idea is that um, if you have a high blood sugar level, it's going to help you know bring it down and hopefully keep it there, but it's not going to drop the blood sugar levels down too low. It does not cause weight gain. And in fact, a lot of people who take metformin lose a little bit of weight, which might be part of the reason why it works. Um, it's not really a weight loss medication. So it's, you know, if you look at the, the indications or the reasons why uh, metformin is approved for use by the FDA, um, weight loss is not one of them, although it, it does uh, do that for, for many people. And uh, metformin has, this has been around for, for quite a while and met, and medications like metformin. So it's, uh, it's generic, it's cheap, easy to get, uh, widely used. We have a lot of experience with it. So we know that it's um, safe or, uh, or at least we know under what circumstances it's definitely safe and what circumstances it's, it's not safe. So lots of uh, experience on its side. So yes, that's why metformin remains the, the number one go-to first-line medication for people with type 2 diabetes who require uh, a medical pharmacologic treatment. Oh, you're the man. I got to tell you, you know, we, I mean, number one, we could have gone even longer. Number two, that was one of the best answers for everything. I, I mean, I was asking you, you're the best. <laughs> so let me do a little closure and ask you a couple of questions. So everyone out there, this is Dr. Braden Barnett, the most amazing endocrinologist in the whole world. He, yeah, I mean it. He wrote for many of my books for my Beyond the Pearl series. So if you want to see his, his written work, you know, um, Braden, I'm just going to put make it awkward and say you're going to be my endocrinologist for my podcast. Is that going to be okay? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're just amazing. And uh, I think we're going to have to get you back here and focus on some more diabetes things and maybe we'll do some bone health and I'm sure many people have thyroid questions, so you're going to be sure. back, okay? I'll be back. Did you have a go? Hey, I like the little Terminator thing at the end. Thanks for coming today. I really appreciate it. And uh, trust me, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm-hmm.